Jumelang Mzanzi. I am Nolutando Ngakani, the head of news at Health for Mzanzi, the brand new baby sister of Food for Mzanzi. At Health for Mzanzi, we explore the often complex relationship between health and food. Joining me on this podcast is my colleague, Dawn Numdu. My amazing co-sister, Sinesi Potom, is off sick this week, and I'm so happy you could join me, Dawn. Hey, Lulu, time flies, and I'm so chuffed to be joining you on episode four of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Health Form Zanzi. I must admit, big shoes to fall, yeah, <laughs> but I'm so happy to be here with you. And if you're still wondering why we are even calling this podcast Sisters Without Shame, well, you know those secret medical shames you simply cannot share with anyone else? You don't need to suffer in silence anymore, Lala. Every week, we will be your sisters in shame, holding your hand as we unpack your ailments with an expert who has all the right answers to those embarrassing health questions you would not dare ask in public. This podcast is a safe space and there will be no judgment. A lot of surprises, always, but absolutely no judgment from us. So if you're dealing with severe acne like I did when I was younger, possibly hair loss or maybe even that ingrown hair that just keeps coming up, you know, no problem. You have tuned into the right podcast. Dawn, I know we usually start with our friend in crisis segment, but in the spirit of plot twists and turns, I thought we could switch it up on episode 4. On every episode, we do listen to a voice note, read a WhatsApp or email message received from a Health Form Zanzi reader. And these messages are confidential and we will never mention your name unless you want us to. Lulu, I love a good sweet cheroo. This week, our friend is Tebojo Motwane from Bloemfontein in the Free State. Now, Tebojo recently broke the internet after he posted a picture of himself before he went into HIV treatment and during his treatment. The 25-year-old gent took to social media to inspire his followers with his journey. He shared that he was in denial about his HIV status and was even suicidal for the longest time. But everything changed when he accepted the situation and started treating himself. Tebojo told his followers to not be afraid to face the virus and also encouraged them to take the medication. It's never too late. People took to the comment section to congratulate him <laughs> on his journey and also thanked him for inspiring others who are living with the illness. I honestly think that people tend to forget that HIV is a very treatable illness and not a death sentence. You know, I think that's also just because of the massive stigma, Lulu. For years, we have been made to think that when we test positive, it means death. There is life and light after finding out your status. Okay, so over to you, Tebojo and Lulu. Can you tell me, you know, how long have you been HIV positive? And when did you find out about your status? So I found out about my HIV status back in 2019 on my birthday 28 december i've been living with hiv knowingly and that is after i tested i've been living with it before but i did not have an idea 
but I've been knowingly living with it since 2019, December until now. So it's been almost two years now living with HIV. I know that this has also inspired some kind of activism in you. What were your feelings, you know, when you found out about your status? It was a shocker. You know, when we go and we test for HIV, when we think something might be wrong, when we think something might be happening, psychologically and mentally, you prepare yourself. But it's a different story if you go there innocently and you just go and test. And that's exactly what happened with me. I went there innocently because I was suffering from flu and a terrible fever, persistent headache. So when I got there, they just said, you know what, we want to test you first. So to me, it was just standard procedure. And then when the result came out, I was shocked. I was positive. And then I was dealing with this new reality. I think the one feeling I remember evidently and vividly is me being afraid. I felt afraid. And for obvious reasons, because HIV has been attached, actually it has a, a reputation in claiming the lives of people, especially black people. And we grew up with that knowledge that HIV is deadly, HIV is death, and it's only fair for us to be afraid. And that's exactly how I felt. I was afraid. I felt alone because that's what HIV does. It isolates you mentally. It takes you away from belonging in a society. And now you belong in this cloud or whatever, and where you don't feel like you'll ever love again, you'll never belong again. I did not know how to deal with it because the reality was that I'm a new host to a deadly virus that everybody is afraid of, that I myself am afraid of. I think afraid is the only feeling that I possibly can remember feeling at that particular time. How have you managed to find strength? I know HIV is very stigmatized. So how have you managed to find your strength and find your way back to wanting to just love and embrace life? I think really for me, what was important was those internalized conversations with myself. And this had nothing to do with me studying psychology, because at that time when I found out, I was still doing psychology. So one could say, oh, but when I like you, you dealt with it differently because you had a bit of a background in psychology and wara wara. Totally nothing to do with that. I kind of had to remind myself that there is still life after testing for HIV. And that was one of the conversations that I had with myself at the time. And I said to myself, where do we go from here? To me, that was important. I remember saying to myself, it's okay. Whatever it is you want to face from now on, it's okay. That was the conversation I had with myself. Because I had an understanding that conversations with myself are very important. Because I had a belief, and I still believe, that the greatest answers lies within us. So I had to go back there and reach within and say, hey, man, where do we go from here now that we're living with this dative thing? And that was important for me. It kept me going, kept me moving. And also what was important for me, God had to be a constant in my story because I'm a believer of Christ. I'm a believer of God and I'm a Christian. So God had to be a constant throughout me being weak until me being strong and leading a positive life. That really, really was important. As much as I depended on myself for strength, but I had to depend on some external, someone. So really, that was important as well. Philly was important. My mom was very accepting and understanding. So she has been nothing but a pillar of strength throughout the whole journey. My family, my other young sisters and siblings joined the journey because they only found out after, I think, six months, eight months, when I was doing much, much better. They also have been good and a very positive part of my journey as well. What motivated you to get care? And then also, what is the role of diet in terms of your care? 
when I tested for, for HIV, I did not find out that I was HIV positive. I found that I had HIV and AIDS. There's often a confusion with people. They were like, but how do you get AIDS? What's the story? So I have been living with HIV. And when I found out, it had progressed to AIDS at the time. So my immune system was already weak because my CD4 count was already 175, which was below the normal average. When you're from zero, which I don't think it happens, but from zero CD4 count until 200, it's a life-threatening CD4 count. From 201 upwards to 500, it's a compromised CD4 count. And then from 501 upwards, it's a normal CD4 count. And mine was just below the compromised CD4 count which was 175. The doctors had a very important and profound conversation with me. They said, listen, man, you really, really, really have to be on treatment. For me, that was important, you know. They said to me, you need to be on treatment and you need to take care of yourself because should you not do that, then you are putting yourself and your health at jeopardy. I had to cut on a lot of things. I had to cut on alcohol, which was one thing they emphasized I had to quit smoking for my own health because I was diagnosed with TB as well. So I had TB and AIDS. So it was important for me to cut on like a lot of things. I went to gym and that was because they said to me, after you take your treatment, you might gain a lot of weight. So it's important for you to keep that in check. Go to gym, even if it's jogging, that's important. I'm from Kasi, so the whole diet thing never worked because from Kasi, we eat the same thing. If it's pap and cabbage, all of us take it, you know, and you don't, you don't say, ah, I just want to have greenies and stuff. But healthy food was in check. My mom was well informed about that. A lot of vegetables were in the menu almost every day. Even though sometimes like, we would just eat whatever everybody is in the house, whatever is available in the house. But healthy life has been nothing but a consistency in my life ever since I tested for HIV. I do drink some alcohol sometimes, but it's in check. It's no longer heavy drinking. It's no longer constant drinking. And a lot of drinking of water, which is one thing that people don't understand, is that ARV is a very strong medication. So drinking a lot of water and including water in your diet is very important because they're very strong medication. They can damage your kidneys. So drinking a lot of water is important in order to regulate the health and the good work or health of your kidneys. A lot of those small things are important where health is concerned, where dieting is concerned, healthcare is concerned. It's been a lot of that. Took time to get used to it, but now I have it in check. Bona, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think needs to be done to reduce the stigma against HIV and AIDS in our mm-hmm. society? Nowadays, we're so focused on this COVID business. I think we've forgotten yeah. that HIV is a leading epidemic. Sure. But, you know, what do you think sure. needs to be done then to reduce the stigma against the virus? I mean, I have a lot of conversations with people who are activists of HIV and I stay in their world and I'm for that cause. However, you know, I'm often criticized for this. And even if I get criticized after this is released, I'm okay with that. The reality will always remain that stigma will always be there because stigma is deeply rooted. It's actually a profound concept than we think it is because then the sentiments of stigma is carried through what people believe people understand and people know. People learned to not understand and to not accept people who belong to a minor group. That could be gay people, could be lesbian people. Everybody who belongs in a minor group. As people, we learn to not understand them, to not accept them, 
and to not understand their story. So HIV is much, much deeper than, oh, you're going to infect me. It's much, much deeper than that. It's saying you belong in a small group. I belong in a majority. It's more like racism. It's more like you're not privileged. I'm privileged. Where finance is concerned, you belong in that space. I belong in this space. Also, it's easy for people to learn than for people to unlearn certain things that they've learned. To teach people to love is a different story, but to unlearn them from hating or from not loving whatever is a complex situation. That's why I say it's important that we have people who walk and who educate people who are not living with HIV in efforts of trying to eradicate the stigma. It's equally important that we also focus on people living with HIV and to say to them, better prepare yourself that once you disclose your status to the world, the world might not be as forgiving as you think. It might not be as understanding as you might want it to be understanding. So it's also important to equip people who are living with HIV and to say, the world out there is going to be cold for you. The world is going to stigmatize you. And that's important as well. I, I often have a lot of conversations with people who say, Nakia's have to tell people, you know, and wara wara. And it's okay to be afraid. But I always say to people, even on that day when you have gathered enough strength and enough courage and bravery, be better prepared that as brave as you are, not everybody is going to be as understanding. Because the problem of disclosing your status for validation or external acceptance is that you might have a setback should the world not accept you. It's really, really important to say to people, disclose, but be okay with yourself first. You are so okay to deal with the stigma because we can focus too much on stigma, which is going to be a very, very difficult and challenging battle. So it's also important to deal with people who are vulnerable in this story as to say, mm-hmm. we are fighting this, but while we're fighting this, better prepare yourself, equip yourself that whatever you may experience or you might come across during your journey, you are okay with it. But to answer your question, in our efforts in trying to eradicate the stigma, the only option for us is to educate people. And also our approach should be very careful as to not put ourselves out there as being victims of HIV. As I've seen many people on Twitter do it, they'll be posting things like, I'm HIV, so what? It's more like you're fighting people. Really the aim is to have profound conversations with people and remind them that we're still human And we are not victims, we are not seeking pity, we are not seeking validation, we are okay with ourselves. That's really, really, really important. So don't go out there and try to be a victim and say, you know what, my partner did this to me, I'm HIV positive now, men are trash, what, what? Let us go out there and say, hey man, condoms are important, prep is important. In order to avoid being where I am, let us normalize doing this, let us normalize HIV testing dates. Let us also avoid putting ourselves out there as if we're seeking pity. So then we are adding to the stigma. We are saying to people, once you're positive, you can never do anything but to be a victim of HIV. That's important. Is lack of treatment literacy you know, a major obstacle in the attempts to provide treatment across the globe? That's a deep one. I go to a clinic personally. I think that's one of the reasons why many people don't go to clinics. It's because you are being treated like you're living with HIV. It's a very dehumanizing behavior. It's a very dehumanizing culture of health practitioners who think it's okay to dehumanize people because of their status. So I think that also has an effect in people defaulting their treatment. 
And also from a perspective of a patient, it's really, really, really hard. Not only for people who are defaulting, but people because they don't understand treatment. They never learn treatment. They are never educated. A typical example is that I was saying to a friend of mine just the other day, and I said, HIV counseling is whack. HIV counseling is cold. It's scripted. It is the responsibility of somebody who's counseling someone into their new reality to be as warm as they possibly can. You don't just say to someone, I'm sorry, you are now HIV positive. We'll help you fight through this. There's treatment for you. You need to make people understand what's their reality, what to look out for, what does treatment entail, how are they going to react to treatment, what is a possible side effect, and how to do those side effects. How do they disclose? What happens if they're rejected? Those small things, that is how someone is supposed to be ushered into treatment. Someone is supposed to be ushered into this new reality of living with HIV. That's really, really important as well, which is one thing that I think it's really, really, really lacking in our healthcare provision where the government is concerned. So those small things, they really, really do have an impact in people not attending for treatment or going as far as being initiated into treatment. One of the reasons why people default, people don't even go and test because they know how cold the process is, how cold the treatment is from nurses, from everybody who's trusted with the responsibility of dealing with sensitive issues. Because reality is, say HIV is a very sensitive issue and the approach where HIV is concerned should be very sensitive, should be very warm and very sincere and more human. Because patients should be treated like humans. But you go to Kasi, you go to a local clinic, like public clinics, you get there. All of us, we line there. There's a, we queue and say, HIV, this is where you queue. Would you go back there? We'd never go back. Because now, if somebody says HIV people decide, that's him or that's her disclosing status in front of people without your permission. So that's morally incorrect. So those are one of the things that, you know, have an impact in us defaulting not going to test, and also even if we go to test, but then we, we understand how brutal and how cold it is to attend clinic. So we're like, okay, I know I'm positive, but ugh, I'm not going there. To close off, do you have any advice for somebody who's, you know, just found out their status? And yeah. Stuff? It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to be anxious. I've said earlier, HIV comes with a reputation of claiming lives. It comes with a reputation of, we've learned, you know, we would see on life orientation textbook, page 34 or 37, we would see a very ashy picture of someone who looks very, very scary because now they were HIV. So how we were taught about HIV also had an impact, played a big, big role in how we understand HIV. So we were never taught about HIV, but some sense of fear was instilled within us about HIV, which is why we have this belief about HIV being a deadly virus and being a very, very scary virus of a horror. So it's okay to be afraid, given those reasons, but don't stay there for too long. Don't dwell in that space for too long. Go through the emotions, go through everything, go through the uncertainty, but it's important that you tap and bounce back from that space because the longer you stay there, as the longer you end up believing that you are that space, as the longer that you end up believing that you are the virus itself. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Deboho. 
remember to check out the detailed article on Deboho's journey on healthformzanzi.co.za. To write to Sisters Without Shame, email hello at healthformzanzi.co.za. That's H-E-L-L-O at healthformzanzi.co.za. Or you can shoot us a WhatsApp on 076-132-0454. That's 76 Another great episode of Sisters Without Shame proudly brought to you by Health from Zanzi. But as promised, this is a no-holds-barred podcast and we discuss with the little awkward dilemmas that people deal with daily. Dawn, what is the take-home message today? This week, I'm feeling super positive, Lulu. HIV is a treatable chronic illness. Take your medication and you will lead a perfectly normal life. I'm almost left inspired by Tebojo as well. It takes courage to also just put yourself out there and love again. I mean, it's crazy. It is almost like he got a second chance and he's making the most out of it. You know, Dawn, it takes strength and acceptance of yourself to not only want to survive, but to thrive. Also, just because we are living in a global pandemic, it doesn't mean that we must sweep the HIV epidemic under the rug. Like Deboho said, continue to be safe when it comes to matters of hanky-panky. It could happen to anyone. That brings us to the end of episode 4 of Sisters Without Shame. Proudly brought to you by Health from Zanzi. From me, Lulu Nakani. And me, Donumdu. Have a great week. And remember to show us some loving by sharing this podcast with a friend. <laughs> <laughs>